Hi, and welcome to Witch with Books. I'm Jason Mankey. I'm your host. I'm here with Keldon. We're actually at the Sacred Harvest Festival in Minnesota. And so we're outside. We're just recording on my phone, which is why the sound is going to be so crappy and why there's so many other voices in the background. Hi, Keldon. Thanks for hanging out with me. Hi, I'm glad to be here with you. Yeah, uh, we've been friends for long time now yeah, it's like probably 72 years 72 years yeah. we are immortal witches yeah no like six or seven years maybe I don't know. yeah it's like 2015 maybe yeah maybe that's about right i don't know time gets time gets away from you the older you get that's true yeah so this is this is the witch with books podcast we talk about books you've written two books for llewellyn and you just released your first independent release, mm -hmm. which is a collection of stories and folk tales that you wrote yourself. I sure did. Can you talk to us about that book for a little bit? Yeah. So it's called All Them Witches, mm -hmm. Folk Tales and Rhymes. And it really is kind of just going to the very roots of, of what I love to do, which is to tell stories. Um, I love all things folklore, but especially being able to share pieces of folklore and tell stories. And I thought it would be fun to craft my own original folk tales, um, which, you know, technically speaking, they're not really folk tales until everyone else starts to tell them. But every folk tale has to come from somewhere, exactly. though, right? Exactly. So the hope is that eventually these stories will spread. Um, but yeah, they're stories that I cobbled together using other pieces of existing folklore, folklore from things like black dogs and so on and so forth, um, as well as writing little nursery rhymes, because that's something else I really like to do is to write poems and using classic nursery rhyme structure. I mean, that's how I write a lot of my spells, um, because I think that there's so much power in that. And I think the way that nursery rhymes are written both in terms of the words themselves but the way they're structured are so um fun they're fun really so yeah it was a fun book to write it's an adorable book thank you i remember picking it up shortly after it came out and you're like i'll send you a free copy i'm like no i want to give you your four dollars oh, you're you know. a saint i know i get that a lot i know you do so you're probably most well known for writing the crooked path Yes. which is sort of an introduction to traditional witchcraft. What role do folktales play in your witchcraft practice? A massive role. I mean, the way that, you know, I really look at it is that witchcraft is folklore, right? Mm. Witchcraft comes from folklore. So, you know, looking at folktales and, and really folk narratives broadly, um, plays a massive role because that's where I turn to in order to learn more about about where witchcraft comes from, what it means to be a witch, and what's cool, you know, about folk tales is they really sort of echo and carry throughout throughout life, throughout existence. Right? We here, you know, in modern times, like we still find ways that we connect to stories that were told and recorded you know hundreds of years ago um so in my craft you know when i want to learn more about certain things um but also when i want to feel inspired and enchanted turning to different folk narratives is a way to really light that fire for me do you have a favorite folktale 
I, I have two favorite folk tales. Um, one of my favorites is Mother Hole, mm-hmm. which I've gotten to tell two times this week I know, here. it's in my head um, right now. And I'm an apple tree. Shake these apples <laughs> off yep. of me. They're too heavy. My branches. Mm-hmm. Um, and then The Devil's City Brother. Um, so, I mean, and both of these are recorded by the, you know, the Grimm brothers who have done a lot of different interesting things and some things that, um, you know, I think have kind of hindered the way we look at stories. But um, the Devil City Brother is a really interesting sort of anomaly in terms of kind of devil tales where um, the devil's really painted in a very kind and sympathetic light um, and is really kind of overtly giving gifts and gifts that, you know, don't necessarily come with these strings attached. Nice. Mm-hmm. So we've talked a little bit this week about some of the problems that have been created by recorders of stories like the Brothers mm-hmm. Grimm. I don't think most people are familiar with those issues. Mm-hmm. So what are the issues? Well, so one of the things is, you know, and this is, you know, this is just part of the sort of ideas that, um, you know, the Grimm brothers were operating during the time, but it was a lot of this very survivalist theory, right? So these these stories that they were that they were hearing and they were recording like that these are all sort of remnants of things that then eventually become one sort of solid thing so like a really good example of this is you know in modern in modern witchcraft and pagan spaces we have a lot of ideas about things like the wild hunt and it's this very you know codified monolithic idea um, and that really comes from the Brothers Grimm, where they were looking at all of these different pieces of, of folklore and kind of cobbling it together and being like, well, this must represent something that is more ancient. Um, and that's just not necessarily true. The other thing that, you know, they did is with the stories that they were hearing and recording is that, is that they changed them. They polished them up. Um, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. In a lot of ways, that is how folk narratives work where, you know, they change and adapt each time they're told and they change and adapt in terms of environment and preference and needs. Um, But it also sort of created, again, this illusion that these stories have sort of one form, one sort of correct telling, and that this is what that is. And, And that becomes a problem. There's a lot of criticism, especially of the Disney retellings Mm -hmm. of stories. What are specifically a lot of the issues with the Disney retellings? I think the biggest thing with the Disney retellings is that they are very sanitized. Um, You know, they take away a lot of the, you know, and no pun intended, grim, um, (laughs) (laughs) grim elements. Right. Um, And, you know, because they wanted to, to make it more you know, it's safer for children. Um, and there's a lot to be said too about a lot of original fairy tales, not even having been intended for children. Um, so, you know, I think that's one of the biggest criticisms is that it creates this, this sanitized clean version, um, which again, like, I don't think that is always necessarily a bad thing. I mean, I think about, um, you know, we, we've been around, kids this week and and telling stories and i think you know if i'm telling a story um to a kid there might be certain things that i change or adapt based on what i feel might be appropriate for them 
Yes, um, most of these stories have involved a bad person named Jason. Yeah, that's... Well, I can neither, neither confirm or deny. Um, I think the other thing, too, is, again, um, it creates this idea of, like, the right telling. I mean, we see this with the you know criticisms that are coming up with um, modern live-action mm. adaptations. This idea that it's deviating from you know, from the, you know, Disney version, um, in some capacity and that that's not okay. Um, because the Disney version is ultimately the, the right or true telling. It has become sort of the arbitrator of truth, hasn't it? Like when mm-hmm. people think of Snow White now mm-hmm. or Sleeping Beauty, they sort of default to mm-hmm. the Disney movies of these mm-hmm. films. I mean, there aren't a whole lot of families that, Hey, let's go read Brothers Grimm and terrify <laughs> our children. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and again, there's no, the thing with folklore is that there's no correct one true telling, right? Because within folklore, within folk narratives, there is no ownership, right? The only, well, I guess that's not totally true because really what it is, is that the, the owner of the story is whoever is telling it in that moment. Um, there's no, right. We can't point to, you know, a lot of these, these folk narratives and say, well, this is the person who originally, this was the first person who ever told that story Mm. because so much of that is just lost to time. Um, and yeah. You are a natural storyteller. Sometimes when I go to people's workshops at festivals, they have trouble telling a story. You're really good at telling stories. Did you know this when you were a young person growing up? Well, stories were a big part of, of childhood and, um, you know, I think being sort of creative and creating different narratives was, was a big part of growing up for me because again, I always sort of bring it back to one growing up out in the country, um, where, you know, you were having to spend a lot of time outside. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I always talk about still being part of that sort of era, which still exists for some people where it's like, you know, during the summer, you know, it's like the sun comes up and your parents are shooing you out of the house and they're only unlocking the door to let you back in when the sun starts to go down. Um, and I didn't have a lot of friends. So I relied on my imagination a lot to create stories and to create friends, um, and really sort of tuning into fairy tales. And so, um, I just, yeah, I love telling stories. Your best-selling book is The Crooked Path. When people ask me, what is traditional witchcraft? If I want a book about that, where should I start? Your book is one of the two that I tell people to start with. What is traditional witchcraft to you? And also, as someone who tried to write about traditional witchcraft early for Llewellyn, (laughs) they seemed very confused by the idea. So, traditional witchcraft is really, essentially, it is non-Wiccan forms of witchcraft that really lean into and are inspired by folklore. Um, I always sort of describe modern witchcraft as a tree. And it's a tree that shares a lot of the same roots, right? So things like folklore, folk magic, ceremonial magic, um, different pieces from mythology, um, as well as things inherited from the witch trials, from witch trial transcripts. And as this tree grows, it sort of splits into two 
wider trunks, which then have all of their little branches. And I think it's really about which way the sort of trunk leans. I think for Wicca, there is a tendency to lean more into the ceremonial. It carries a lot more of those elements. Absolutely. And I think for traditional witchcraft, it leans more into into the folklore side. And it's not to say that either side can't have the either. I mean, anytime we're trying to draw these lines in boxes, it's just asking for trouble. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, traditional witchcraft is a path that really looks to folklore, to the sort of folkloric origins of the witch, um, spends a lot of time kind of grappling with witch trial transcripts, um, folk magic, as well as really deep animism, really looking to the spirit in all things, and especially the, the local landscape. So when I go to spaces with a lot of traditional witches in it, as a Wiccan witch, mm -hmm. uh, sometimes those spaces aren't comfortable for me because mm -hmm. people hate me for, for Wiccan. What is the source of the animosity between the two camps? It really, I mean, it really goes back to the start of, you know, the modern witchcraft revival. So, you know, going, you know, to the 1950s, I mean, I know, it's, you know, things were moving and shaking a little bit before that. Um... But what I really see, you know, when we look at the history is that the last of the witchcraft, you know, acts are repealed in, in England and right away you have Gerald Gardner coming forth, you know, pub very publicly that I'm a witch. I'm part of this thing. We've been here all this time. We've been doing this. And, you know, there are other people who are seeing this and they're like, well, that's not what we've been doing. I don't agree with that. That's not an accurate depiction of, of all witches. Um, but that, I think, really largely sort of boils under the surface until Gardner's passing. Um, you know, we also get the launch of the Witchcraft Research Association, which I think is where this really kind of like comes into its own because the idea of the WRA was that it was going to bring together you know, all of these witches and covens across the UK that have been out of contact and we're all going to share secrets and be friends. And of course, that's absolutely not what happens. Um, and in the Pentagram, their newsletter, you start getting people kind of going back and forth and debating. And there's a lot of sort of uh, anti-Gardner rhetoric. And a lot of this starts to come from our dear friend, Robert Cochran. Bobby Cochran. Bob, Bobby Cock. I don't think he would um, want to be called Bobby Cock. I don't think so either. Um, but, you know, he really did not like Gardner. And that, you know, I think is unfortunately a big part of, you know, some of the, some of the critique that he gets, which is fair, you know, it's just that it was so, it was, it was almost obsessive at times. You know, and that's really a big part of why Doreen eventually left his group is because he was so strong about it. He was calling for a Night of the Long Knives with the Gardnerians. For, for those of you who are not giant history nor nerds, Doreen would be Doreen Valiente, Doreen who Valiente. was one of Gerald's earliest high priestesses mm -hmm. and wrote the version of The Charge of the Goddess most of us know, who later then worked with Robert Cochran. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, I think at the root, though, like this really stems from our human need for authenticity to feel like what we're doing is important and matters. And we see this across different spaces. It's not just in witchcraft space where we see somebody doing something that's different than what we're doing. And we have this need to sort of correct them or attack yep. them. Um, 
and and I think that this is part of what still happens today is there's this idea of well you know um, and I've seen I've seen this argument go both ways I know right now we're talking about sort of one particular direction but right like Wicca is not real witchcraft it's watered down it has no teeth um, and at the same time, you see rhetoric kind of going the other way. Traditional witchcraft is... It is watered down and it has... It's nonsense. It has no nose. It has no <laughs> nose. Um, well, I see a lot of, you know, sort of, well, it's just, it's just Wicca. It's just Wicca. And that's all there is to it. Um, or, you know, it's, it's sort of masquerading skulls on it to make it seem a little bit more spooky. And I think with anything, there's always going to be truth in different in different pieces but i think these are also often based on a lot of misinformation a lot of misunderstanding um about different about different groups um and you know with the with the piece about like the there being a kernel of truth is i think that there are sort of outliers and usually unfortunately they sometimes are the people that speak the loudest and so that's what you see and that's what you think and um and then you write off whole groups of people based on that that really stinks so we've talked about two of the three books that you've written so far. Uh -huh. We have yet to talk about The Witch's Sabbath. Uh-huh. What is The Witch's Sabbath? So The Witch's Sabbath is a nocturnal gathering of witches and spirits, typically led by the devil, sometimes as well as with some sort of female leader, maybe the queen of the fairies, the queen of Alfame. Um, and this is a narrative that is... You know, really comes from a chain reaction of a bunch of other narratives kind of going through time and really starting actually with accusations against early Christians, which I always find really entertaining on um, this idea of basically of groups gathering during the night to do nefarious things. Um, and this just grew over time until eventually it arrived at witches. And um, yeah, and it's something that we still engage with today. I mean, I talked in the book about how the, the Sabbath really emerges in two different ways in modern witchcraft, and one of those would be the Wheel of Year, um, this idea of seasonal celebrations. Um, and this comes, you know, really from kind of the down the pipeline from Margaret Murray to Gerald Gardner. Um, but it also comes out in a way that is um, a bit closer to you know, how it, how it was in trial transcripts, which is, you know, really kind of going out in spirit into the other world to engage in this, you know, in this eldritch frenzy. <laughs> um, and I think that's really cool. I think it's cool how it's um, emerged in two different ways. And, you know, I think it's a really good way of showing how people have found meaning in folklore. And they've sort of created something new and created new traditions out of that. And I think that's really beautiful and awesome. And I like that, you know, for a lot of people, then you kind of get the best of both worlds. It's like the book and the movie. Right. So we've been outside in a field in Minnesota for the last week or so together now. And the sounds you hear are actually the truck's that are emptying the Porta John. So this is this is quite the interview for me on the show. This is well, I you know. What do you what do you get out of an outdoor event like this? Um well, one it's it's really, you know, it's a good way to connect with nature um and and sometimes in ways that are not really fun. I mean, we've had some some storms come through. Yeah. And so you get, you know, it's really sort of a test sometimes to your own, you know, strength. Um, and 
but I like, I mean, I love being outdoors. I love camping. Again, that was a big part of growing up for me. So, um, you know, being in a small tent is not, it's not horrendous by any stretch. Um, but, but it's fun. And I really like, you know, anytime I go to a festival or an event, you know, really the thing I love is just sitting down and talking to people. Yeah. I think that's what I love about it too, is just the connections you get to make with other people. And when you're outside and there's no TV and your phone barely works <laughs> and all that, you're sort of forced to talk to other people, which I really appreciate. Uh-huh. uh-huh. Yeah. Well, Keldon, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's always a pleasure. You are one of my favorite people. Um, you can get, where can we get All Them Witches? You can get All Them Witches on Amazon or Barnes & Noble. And The Witches' Sabbath and The Cricket Path are both from Llewellyn and should be available everywhere. If your local witch store does not have them, mm-hmm. tell your local witch store to, to get have them. them. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Thank you so much, Keldon. I love you so much. Oh, You're I just love one you of too, my Jason. favorite people. All right, that's it for us. Thanks for listening to the Witch With Books podcast. This has been one of our special author spotlight editions. I'm Jason Mankey. Until I talk to you next time, happy reading. <laughs>